Grab your Bibles. Stay standing. Stay standing. Grab your Bibles. Turn to the book of Psalms, chapter 86. Psalm chapter 86. Good to have um, our former pastor's wife of 25 years with us tonight, Mrs. Landis. And then on this side, uh, it's good to have her pastor's wife, Diane Nelson, uh, with us as well. Her husband, Brother John. Um, I got to tell you this, Brother John, as a young staff guy, I was, like, I was like the real young guy on the staff. Brother Nelson saved my bacon so many times. Oh, Brother Prater, don't do that. Oh, Brother Prater, don't say that. And uh, I tell you, he kept me, I got myself in enough trouble, but he kept me out of a lot of trouble. And uh, I am so incredibly thankful for that. So it's good to have these ladies with us tonight. We're going to read Psalm 86 responsively. I'll read the odd verses, odd-numbered verses. You read the even-numbered verses. Now bear with me tonight. This Bible just came in last night. I don't know if I like it or not. I've never used an NIV, so I don't know. Uh... <laughs> Psalm 86. This is brand new, so I picked, a, I, I picked a psalm tonight where I wouldn't have to turn any pages. So um, they're all stuck. To, it smells good. They ought to come out with an air freshener, new Bible smell. It smells great. I just don't know how well it's going to handle, so we'll, uh, we'll see. Psalm 86 tonight, I'll begin in verse 1. You follow up with verse 2, so on and so forth. Bow down thine ear, O Lord. Hear me, for I am poor and needy. Be merciful unto me, O Lord, for I cry unto thee daily. For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive, and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. In the day of my trouble I will call upon thee, for thou wilt answer me. All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and shall glorify thy name. Teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. For great is thy mercy toward me, and thou hast delivered my soul from the lowest hell. But thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and plenteous in mercy and truth. O Lord, thou 
Show me a token for good, that they which hate me may see it and be ashamed, because thou, Lord, hast holpen me and comforted me. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated tonight. A Gallup poll once revealed, and I did a little, a little research and and uh, pretty much across the board, this stands true um, in the things that I was able to find. There were a couple of, uh, a couple of differences as far as, uh, as you went on down the line. But in this Gallup poll, the, it was revealed that the hymn that Americans love to sing the most is Amazing Grace. That does not surprise me at all. But which hymn do you suppose came in number two in this particular poll and and in a lot of the research that I did today? What what hymn do you suppose came in number two? It is well with my soul. Somebody else. Oh, rugged cross. How great thou art. The answer... The answer is in verse 12. The first few words of the hymn are recorded in Psalm 86 and verse 12. And for those of you who said, how great thou art, you're exactly right. O Lord, my God. The second most favorite hymn that Americans like to sing is indeed, how great thou art. That song originated in Sweden in 1885, and it came from the hand of a 26-year-old preacher named Carl Boberg. Its original title, when translated into English, was, O Great God. It has been translated, as you can well imagine, into many different languages. It's been sung under many different titles. But the focus of the song has always remained the same, and that is the greatness of God. We do indeed serve a great God who is worthy to be praised. Amen? So with the Lord's help, I want to preach to you tonight under this title, O Lord my God, how great thou art. As I began reading Through this psalm and and meditating on it, the Lord seemed to give me three statements that I think sum up the psalmist's thoughts in in these words about God. And the first thought is this, O Lord my God, how good Thou art. Look at verse 5 again, and we'll look at many of these verses, read many of these verses again as we've read them already tonight. But David said this, For Thou, Lord, art good. God is good in in that He gives. Look with me uh, down through this psalm in verse 1. We see that He gives a listening ear. Bow down thine ear, O Lord, hear me. Verse 6, give ear, O Lord, unto my prayer and attend to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble I will call upon thee, for thou wilt answer me. It is in His goodness that our 
great God bows to give a listening ear even to our most feeble prayers. And note here the confidence that that David had when he prayed in verse 7. He said, for thou wilt answer me. I mean, think about it. What reason is there to pray if we do not possess the confidence that God will hear us? We might as well pray to the wind or we might as well pray to the waves if somehow we are not convinced that God will hear and answer our prayers. Now, I'm not saying that he's always going to answer them the way we want him to. He's not always going to answer them as quickly as we would like him to or directly as we would like him to. And sometimes his answer may be yes and Sometimes his answer may be no, and at other times his answer may be not yet. But God always answers our prayer. God gives. He gives a listening ear, and then in verse 1, in the second part, he gives a helping hand, for I am poor and needy. How many times have we found ourselves poor of spirit and needy of strength and Thank God we were able to call upon him and he has heard us with his ear and he has helped us with his hand. How often has God been there for us in those trying times, in those tempting times, in those troubling times, yea, in those terrible times? God has been there for us. So he gives a listening ear. He gives a helping hand. Then according to verse 4, he gives a refreshing touch. Rejoice the soul of thy servant. For unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. To rejoice the soul is to make the soul glad. Thank God tonight for his refreshing touch. There is nothing sweeter than the fresh touch of God upon our life when we're weary and when we're discouraged and when we're burdened. And sometimes that touch will come through a song that we hear on the radio. or Sometimes it may come through a meme that we see on Facebook or, or a, a post that we see on Facebook. Or sometimes it may come from a text from a, a, a church member or a family member who, who just lets us know that I love you and I'm praying for you. And sometimes it'll come from a note. Sometimes it'll come from an invitation uh, to lunch or to breakfast. And we get to spend some time with a, a, a brother or sister in Christ who spends that time together with us refreshing our soul. We ought to be thankful for those who God sends into our life and he touches us through them. And we ought to to pray to God and ask Him to help us be that one. Not just God send someone into my life to touch me and to help me and encourage me, but God let me be that one. God use me today to be the one to bring your refreshing touch to somebody's life. I believe He'll do that. Look at verse 11. God gives a guiding light. 
Teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. The psalmist speaks of three things here real quick. He speaks of education. Teach me thy ways, O Lord. Why would David, a man after God's own heart, a man who knew God in, in an incredibly intimate way, why would David have to pray and ask God to teach him? I think the answer is simply this. Our way is what comes natural. God's way must be learned. And I think that's why David prayed that. And then we see determination. He said, I will walk in thy truth. And we understand tonight that God's way is the right way. God's way is the way of truth. But then look at this. He speaks of unification. He said, unite my heart to fear thy name. A united heart is obviously the opposite of a divided heart. Listen to me tonight. The only way to keep a commitment like the one that this psalmist made when, when he said in, in, in verse 11, when he said, I will walk in thy truth, the only way that, that he could or we could possibly keep that kind of commitment is to, is to consistently walk in truth. And we do that when our heart is united with God's heart. That means that we are of one heart with God. What God loves, we love. What God desires, we desire. By the same token, what God loathes, we loathe. What God despises, we despise. Too many people make the commitment that this psalmist made, maybe in a revival, uh, maybe in a, in a church service, maybe in the privacy of their own devotion time. They make the commitment that the psalmist made only to fail because their heart and God's heart are not one. So we see here that God is good in that He gives. He gives a listening ear, a helping hand, a refreshing touch, a guiding light. But not only does God give, God forgives. Look at verse 5. For thou, O Lord, art good, I like this, and ready to forgive, and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. He gives us what is good. Mercy. He takes away what is evil, our sin, our shortcomings. And he's ready to do it at any moment. Oh Lord my God, how good thou art. Look also O oh Lord my God, how gracious thou art. Look at verse 15 again. But thou, O oh Lord, art a God full, full of compassion 
gracious, long-suffering, and plenteous in mercy and truth. For God to be gracious is for Him to be kind. It is for Him to be benevolent. Now, don't get me wrong, there is, there is a side to God that hates evil. And he judges evil. And he punishes evil. There is that side of God. We've, we've got to maintain the proper balance. We cannot forego that side of a, a holy and righteous God. But that's not the side of God that the psalmist focuses on in this verse. He focuses on the kind and benevolent and gracious side of God. And he says this, he says that God's grace is abundant. Note the words full and plenteous. God never runs short on grace, ever. God is forever looking for opportunities to, be, to show kindness to his people and to bless them. And church, you've heard me say this many times before, and I'm absolutely convinced of this tonight as much as I've ever been, that God is more ready to bless his people than his people are ready to receive his blessing. God wants to be kind. God wants to be benevolent. God wants to be gracious. God wants to bless his people more so sometimes than his people want to be blessed. And that's sad. God's grace is abundant. But not only that, God's grace is available. Look at that verse again, verse 15. God's grace is available in the form of compassion for the hurting. But thou, O Lord, art a God full, full of compassion. Compassion for the hurting. Patience or long-suffering for the struggling. Mercy for the sinning and truth for the seeking. O oh Lord my God, how good thou art. He gives and he forgives. O oh Lord my God, how gracious thou art. His grace is abundant. His grace is available. But then let's consider this tonight, verse 10. For thou art great. Oh, Lord my God, how great thou art. The psalmist identifies a number of things here. God is great in identification. 
Look again, verse 8. Among the gods, little g, among the gods, there is none like unto thee, O Lord. Verse 10. For thou art great and doest wondrous things. And then look what he said. Thou art God alone. Alone. Among the Romans, you would find such gods and goddesses as Jupiter and Juno and Neptune and Plato and Diana and Mars and Venus and Cupid and Mercury and Minerva and Ceres and Saturn. But the truth is, none of those are God. They may be gods, a small g, but they aren't God. The Olympian gods and goddesses aren't God. I don't care if it's Apollo or Artemis or Aphrodite or Zeus or Athena. They're not God. The Egyptian sun god, Ra, is not God. Nor is Pele, the Hawaiian god of the volcano. Nor are the false gods of the the Hindus or the Muslims. They are not God. Buddha is not God. Allah is not God. Baal or Ashtaroth, though they were worshipped as God in the Old Testament, neither of them are God. None of these are God any more than the man-made gods of the 21st century are gods. Sir Preacher, what would those gods be? Take your choice. Any number of the things that we put between us and God. Work, family, money, athletics. You go right on down the list. Popularity, praise, promotion. We think that a God has to be a statue or has to be tangible somehow. That's not the truth. Our own comfort, our hobbies, our recreation, anything that we put between us and God is a God. Little g. But in the end, they can't be gracious. They can't be kind. I mean, the psalmist, or not psalmist, but the prophet, I believe it was Isaiah, talked about how these man-made gods, they can't see, they can't hear, they can't talk, they don't have hands that can help you. When you come to the end of your rope and your heart is breaking, your hobby is not what's going to keep you going. Your money 
is not what's going to keep you going. Your career is not what's going to keep you going. God is who keeps us going. Those others, they're worshipped as God, but they're not God. There is only one God, and he's the God of the Bible. Jehovah God, God Almighty, El Shaddai, that's God. And beside him, there are no others. The psalmist speaks here of creation. O Lord my God, how great thou art in creation. Look at the last part of verse 8. Neither are there any works like unto thy works. Now there are a lot of great and wonderful and marvelous and incredible things that God has done. But I would contend tonight that none exceed the greatness of his creation. Unbelievable. The things that God has created. I read recently of a Sunday school teacher whose own child, her youngest child, was in her class. And during a lesson on creation, she was asking the little ones questions like, Who made the trees? Or, who made the sun, or who made the moon, or who made the stars? And the children would respond in unison, God did. And in her story, she stated how pleased she was, and how her young students were learning so early in life that God made everything. But she said, she, she goes on to tell in her story how that her teaching backfired on her one day when she was at home. She had been trying to teach her child to clean her room and to pick up her toys. So as she was walking into the room, she came upon this mess. And her toys all over the floor. And so she asked her daughter, who made this mess? You see where that's going, don't you? What do you think she said? <laughs> God did. Listen, what God made was perfect. It didn't become a mess until man came along. And we have thoroughly trashed everything good that God has ever created. But one day, one day, it's all going to be restored. This earth, this world, is going to burn up. That's the real global warming. First Peter, it's going to, it's going to, it's going to burn up. God's going to create a new heaven 
and a new earth. It'll be a new Eden-like existence, and it's going to be wonderful. It is well documented that President Theodore Roosevelt loved the outdoors. And it's also, also known that he readily recognized the creator of the outdoors that he loved. As a matter of fact, in his first inaugural address, he said this, I reverently invoke for my guidance the direction and favor of Almighty God. One thing that President Roosevelt enjoyed doing when entertaining diplomatic guests at the White House, he enjoyed taking them out on the, the back lawn at the end of the day. And as they were all standing there, he would begin gazing up into the heavens. And before long, everybody else was doing the same thing. They were just standing there gazing up into the heavens. And as you can imagine, back in his day, there, the, that the beauty of the, the brightness of God's creation was not dimmed by all of the city lights. And so it really was a magnificent sight. And so he would stand there and he would just look, just stand there silent, and nobody else dared say anything. They just looked. And after a few minutes, he would say, Gentlemen, I believe we are small enough now. Let's go to bed. I'm reminded of the first verse of How Great Thou Art. O Lord my God. When I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hand hath made. I see the stars. I hear the rolling thunder. Thy power throughout the universe displays. Then sings my soul my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. To deny the handiwork of God in creation is to be of all men most gullible. Well, I just don't have enough faith to believe that this stuff was just created by words. But you have enough faith to believe that there was a little whatever and then crawled up and became a whatever and then it crawled up and became a whatever. Here's my question to you. Who created the first whatever? Where did that come from? No, no, the truth is it takes more faith to believe in evolution than it will ever take to believe in creation. With the technology that we have today, we are beginning just to, to, to discover just how amazingly complex this world is that we're living in. 
And with every new discovery, more and more of those who once denied that there was any divine element whatsoever are beginning to change their minds. Some of them are even beginning to believe in it, whereas before they would never even consider it. But now with the technological advances and seeing the things that they're seeing, as the psalmist said, that even the heavens declare the glory of God. David didn't have the technology that we have. Yet he knew in his heart that there was a God. There was a creator. There was a master designer, if you will, who one day spoke all of creation into existence. O Lord my God, how great thou art in identification. There's no other God beside the God of heaven. How great thou art in creation. And then in verse 13, how great thou art in salvation. For great is thy mercy toward me, and thou hast delivered my soul from the lowest hell. I told you earlier that the original version of how great thou art originated in Sweden, which it did. But the English virgin, virgin, but the English version, which we enjoy today, came to us from the pen of an English missionary by the name of Stuart K. Hine. Maybe you know this about how great thou art, maybe you don't. But each verse came into being, in our English version, each verse came into being as a result of God working and bringing things to pass that inspired him to write what he wrote. So in reality, every verse of How Great Thou Art is a story in itself. The third verse came about as Hine was preaching and distributing copies of the gospel in village after village. And one day he met a man and his wife. They had owned a Bible for 20 years, but they couldn't read it. And one year, the wife of the house, and it happened to be the very year that I met them, she had purposed in her heart, she had made up her mind that she was going to take that Bible and she was going to learn to read it. And so day after day after day, she poured herself into learning to read the Word of God. But she didn't keep it to herself. In turn, she began to read it to the villagers who, according to Heinz's story, listened slowly and they wondered as she read the story of Christ's death 
on the cross. He said as he stood there and he watched what was going on, tears began to flow as men and women fell to their knees, crying out to God. It was at that precise time that as Stuart Hine was witnessing what was going on as the result of the revelation of God's love being spoken and, and heard for the first time, he said it was then that the third verse, the third stanza of how great thou art was conceived in his heart and would later be given birth as it appeared on the printed page. And in that third verse, Stuart Hine wrote this, and when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. It was that death, that day, that makes it possible for sinners like you and I to be saved from that dreadful place called hell. As Jesus hung there suspended between heaven and earth, we know from the pages of God's Word that it was the culmination of a master plan that had been set in motion in eternity past. We don't need to take the time tonight to get into all of the theological ramifications of the crucifixion, but here's what we do need to understand anew and afresh tonight, that the one on the cross that day should have been you. The one on the cross that day should have been me. Jesus had no sin. It is our sin that put him there. God is so great in salvation because he made a way to heaven that, access, that is accessible, listen, to all men everywhere. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. God is not willing that any should perish. God is great in salvation for so many reasons, but let's not miss the fact tonight that one of the things that makes him great is that it's available to everyone. The way to heaven is through faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Oh, Lord my God, how great thou art in salvation. Then one last thought tonight, how great thou art in exaltation. Look at verse 9 again. All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and shall glorify thy name. For thou art great, and doest wondrous things, thou art 
God alone. And how can we read those words? How can we read those verses tonight and not repeat the words when Christ shall come? With shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim my God how great thou art. One day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here's what that means. Those who once worshipped the sun and the moon and the stars will then worship the one who created them. Every person who lived their life trying to make their own way will bow before the one who is the way. Everyone who spent their time searching for truth will then bow before the one who is truth. And everyone who spent their entire existence trying to get a life will then bow before the one who is the life. Oh, Lord, my God, how great, how good, how gracious thou art.